Hi, I'm Matt Waller, Dean of the Sam M. Walton College of Business. Welcome to Be Epic, the podcast where we explore excellence, professionalism, innovation, and collegiality, and what those values mean in business, education, and your life today. I have with me today Jonathan Thompson, who is the Chief Executive Officer at Nielsen Massey Vanillas. Jonathan graduated from the Walton College in 2005. He has a tremendous amount of experience in consumer packaged goods. He's worked for Mars, Pet Care, Dannon, Glanbia Performance Nutrition, Nature's Best, and he has worked in sales, marketing, supply chain, sourcing, contract manufacturing, and he's been very uh, entrepreneurial. And so it really is my pleasure to talk to you today, Jonathan. Well, thanks for having me, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, you you really have had a wide variety of experiences. And I know right out of school, you went right into consumer packaged goods and you immediately got experience in finance and logistics and sourcing and sales. But when I look at your career, and it's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, you're very young to be a CEO. And I noticed also in talking with you, just you're, you're a very good listener. And I think that is a skill of good leaders. So yes, yeah, thank you, Matt. And uh, just on the listening point, you're absolutely right. It's something that I think, uh, especially today with all of the distractions that we can find ourselves in, you're looking at your phone, you're looking at all the different digital uh, intrusions on our lives, that having that ability to listen is something that I've particularly tried to cultivate. I don't always get it right. In fact, sometimes, you know, you can't wait to speak to hear your own voice, but uh, there is a piece <laughs> of that of uh, just trying to, to really listen to understand. How did you learn to do that? What made you realize it was important, I should say? Yeah, I think that, you know, part of it's the school of hard knocks where if you just would have paid attention, uh, and, I, and I'd say even from the personal side of life too, not just professional, there's been plenty of times where I said, man, if I just would have listened to my brother, or if I just would have listened to what my friends were trying to tell me, uh, maybe I could have made a different choice. And I've been fortunate to actually have a couple of really good mentors in that area. In fact, there was one guy I worked for at Dannon who was just the consummate listener. Yeah, one of these guys that uh, was, kind of at the epicenter of our, our sales strategy department, lots coming at him all day long. But the minute you would ask him a question, he would turn to you and give you the full extent of his attention. And it always struck me that uh, how was he able to actually dedicate his full attention and, and be so patient? So I've tried to emulate, uh, you know, Matt was his name. I've tried to emulate Matt's listening skills throughout the, the length of my career. It's so important. You know, I think I learned it when I first started interviewing for jobs, the more questions I asked and the more listening I did, especially about the person that was interviewing me, the better things seemed to go. I want to get back to something about your background that intrigued me. Graduating undergraduate, right? Undergraduate programs can help you a lot. They can help you learn important things. They can help you develop a network. But I know you you went to a small private college for undergraduate here in Arkansas called Lyon College, a really good college. And, but you graduated summa cum laude. 
which is something very few students do. That's hard to do. It's hard to maintain A's for that length of time. <laughs> and you majored in econ and business and Spanish, which is a broad variety of topics. Did you go into college wanting to get graduate summa cum laude? Oh, no, Matt. Uh, no, I didn't, actually. I, I think it was a, a function of I've always had a a real interest in a lot of different things. And going into college, like many probably do, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life, uh, but I knew that I had all these different interests. And the one thing that I did appreciate that I learned from Lion was it taught me how to think across different broad categories of study. And part of the, the summa cum was just, you know, there was, I grew up in a, just to get into the family a little bit as I grew up with really two different awesome role models at the uh, from a grandparent standpoint. I had one grandfather who was the, the perfectionist and one of the smartest guys I've ever known, and another grandfather who was a bit more of the people person. Those two figures within our family played heavily into my development and upbringing. And so there was an aspect of the perfectionism, I think, that probably bit me as I got into college and said, hey, you got to do your best. Um, it was just focusing a process, not an outcome. Really, if I had to sum it up for you, Matt. What made you decide to get an MBA? I'm, I'm just curious. Yeah, so after I graduated college, I uh, still didn't know what I wanted to go do, but I ended up taking a Rotary International Scholarship, and I went abroad to Spain. And coming back, uh, as I started to look around, what did I want to go do with my myself? I ended up falling back into the family business. And after working the family business for a while, I realized very quickly that it was not up to my level of aspiration of what I wanted to do with my life. And that's when I decided to go off and get the MBA because I realized as I was going to these interviews of places that I did want to go to that I just didn't quite have the, uh, the level of background information. So um, I looked around and decided to stay close to home. The, uh, the MBA at uh, Walton, which I knew had a heavy CPG focus, seemed like a very interesting place. And so that's what led me to the program. So you're relatively young to be the CEO of a, such an established business. I suppose it's somewhat of a family business, is it not? It is. Uh, so, Matt, it's actually a third generation. So it's been around for over 100 years. So very, very well established. It's, a, it's got some tremendous brand equity. The, the business was actually built on the back of high-end culinary uh, and pastry chefs, so professionals that really needed the, the utmost in, in vanilla. Um, in fact, one of the things that attracted me was I had the chance to meet one of the shareholders, one of the third generation, and she was telling me about the early days where they were hand writing labels in the little uh, red brick house in Chicago because uh, the founder of William Sonoma had shown up and said he wanted 50,000 bottles uh, by Friday because you get the order out. Um, and that was their first big account. And to this day, William Sonoma continues to be a, a huge partner for, for the business. So it's got this uh, fantastic long-term pedigree, but I think where you're going with the, the question is, is the, the age and, and the youth, uh, relative youth. And that is actually an interesting topic to delve into, Matt, because it's been something that, as you'd see in my background, I've dealt with the age seniority question my entire career. Yeah, I could, I would imagine. Um, it's those kind of things where you, you walk into a role and you're managing people that maybe have 10, 15 years more experience than you. How do you deal with that? And so I've had to develop an, an enormous toolkit, partly of being humble, 
listening, seeking to understand, because those are the kinds of, of skill sets that allow you to be an effective leader when you don't have those age stripes, for lack of a better term. Well, you mentioned seeking to understand. Have you ever heard of the um, the five whys? Yes, I have. You keep asking why till you get to the bedrock why, right? Yeah. <laughs> when I first started, I learned it was really popular back in the 80s during the quality movement. Back in the 80s, the Japanese auto manufacturers started gaining lots of market share. And one thing that was really clear uh, is that the Japanese cars had better reliability. They didn't break down and they lasted a long time. And people like that. And so their demand started increasing. And U.S. manufacturers really started trying to understand why. But one of the techniques that was really popular back then was the five whys. I think it comes from to Toyota, but I'm not sure. But they, they practice that use of whys. As I've used it, though, I've, I've, I've learned to be a little diplomatic about how I use it. Because if you just keep saying why, people can feel like they're being interrogated. <laughs> so you've exactly got to right. use another word, and you've got to do it in a way that seems more conversational. But nevertheless, the concept is really good. It really is, because you know I think a lot of times we, we stop at the first or second order, and we don't get really down to the bedrock of the situation. Um, and you're right, there is a bit of, of not interrogating. But I, I find that uh, the questions can be the huge unlock for not only the, you know, driving the business forward, but actually culture and creating a culture where, where no one feels that there's a taboo that you can't ask a question is immensely vital, uh, particularly if you're in an innovation business. So I happened into a, a turnaround role, one of my latest roles, not, not obviously my current situation with Nelson Massey, but prior to this, I was on the Isopure business, which was wholly owned subsidiary of, of Glambia. And that was a, it was a bit of a turnaround. So the business had been growing very, very strongly um, with uh, the, the original founder ownership, then private equity, and then we bought the company. We integrated it probably a little too far too deep and it started to kind of take a nosedive. But one of the things that was lost in that was the culture of innovation and collaboration. And I remember walking into a meeting and it was, there was no spirit in the air. Uh, people were working on things and they didn't really know why. And it was just simply as a leader asking some basic questions and inviting people that normally didn't have a voice around the table to weigh in on it, even though it wasn't in their lane. And a couple of meetings of that, and we started to get this amazing collaboration going and a culture of just what you're talking about, asking questions and asking why and trying to understand how do we drive the business forward. Huge unlocked culture, if you can get it. You know, you talk about getting out of your lane and asking people questions that typically aren't asked these questions, right? One problem sometimes you get into when you get people out of their lanes, people can feel like it's um, maybe uh, not following the uh, line of command right. or authority. Yeah. Some people feel it's out of line, I guess is what I would say. Have, have you noticed that? Oh, absolutely. Particularly if there is a, a bit of a culture of hierarchy and expertise, 
uh, in particular, I, I found that in some of the larger organizations where you have a certain degree of functional expertise that's been cultivated over the years. And, you know, and there's a lot of value in that. But there's also a lot of entrenchment in that where uh, if we've always done it this way then and we continue to do it that way, we will never get the breakthroughs. There's a book called The E-Myth uh, by Michael Gerber. It, it's for small businesses. And basically what it says is if you have a small business, you need to document things and streamline the processes and make it to where anyone could run the business. The point of it was a lot of small businesses don't document things. They don't try to create processes that are replicable. No matter how small your business is, you need to get to the point where you optimize the processes, you idiot-proof them, so to speak. You can hand a guide to someone to run the business, and they could come in and run it. That You may not perfectly get there, but that should be part of your goal. I, I, I love where you're going with that, Matt. There's actually a, there's another book, so I'll, I'll check that one out. There's another book called The Design of Business that I also found useful. But the build on what you're saying is that there has to be a, there's a healthy tension between having too much process or the right amount of process and having enough slack in the business so you can be creative and you can evolve. And what that book talks about, much like you're talking about, is you're creating an algorithm of how to run the business. But what happens when you create an algorithm is that you'll get very, very good at running that particular set of business practices. You'll get fantastic at uh, your cost output on your widgets. You'll get very fantastic at uh, maybe your fact-based selling, whatever it is, you're running that algorithm. But what you won't necessarily get out of that is uh, innovation. And the reason why is that you're continually looking at the past. You're continually looking at data and, and facts of how we've done things and that becomes a self-reinforcing loop, which is great. And that's why you have very big businesses, blue chip businesses get very good at running the algorithm. But many times the critique will be that those same businesses will not be able to innovate and it's the smaller upstarts that come along the insurgent brands or whoever you want to call them that come along and create the innovation why because they don't have that process holding them back so they'll try a bunch of new things and there's no right answer but it's a it's an interesting paradigm to consider as a leader so true it's interesting too some companies are better at it than others right some are very good process oriented and when the market changes they're in trouble but, you know, I, I've even been surprised. You know, you look at Walmart. I mean, they've got lots of processes down pat. They have to because they've got so many stores and so many distribution centers and so many trucks and so many employees, you know. Yet, they came out with Walmart Grocery Pickup, Walmart Plus, Neighborhood Markets, and, and really even Supercenters. I know it's been a long time ago, but... Um, I remember when the first super center, it used to be called a, a, a hypermarket, came to Kansas City. I think the first one was in Denver and the second one was in Kansas City. They were too big. You know, the first one that they put in Kansas City, I believe, was 300,000 square feet, whereas super centers now are about 150 to 180,000 square feet. You know, it was just gigantic. You couldn't get around it. It was so big. Uh, but they but they pivoted from that. Somehow they were able to allow for that kind of flexibility to, to let them pivot. 
it's possible. I think another great example, Walmart's a fantastic example. I think another one is Amazon. It's an absolute behemoth and there's different businesses within different businesses. But I think a part of that is also culture. Yes. And I think the, uh, so there's having enough process, not overblown, but then also having a culture that rewards taking risk and innovation. And that's another thing I've experienced in my career is the thing that can shut that down the quickest is fear or lack of clarity or lack of collaboration. There's a lot of things that you have to root out of your business, but if you get those out of the way, then you can get into that, that space of, we're going to have a culture that rewards risk taking now sensible risk taking, but if you reward risk taking, then you can actually have um, a healthy blend of people that are taking those risks and pushing the business forward. And then a whole other set of people that quite frankly, whether it's personality disposition or whatever it may be, are going to be much better at running the algorithm, so to speak. And you need a, you need a blend of both in your business. Well, and this gets to a point I did want to cover with you, and that is a little bit about your career path. And you clearly were willing to take opportunities when they came up. But I think that taking those opportunities makes for a richer life and a greater learning experience and certainly more opportunity. But one of the biggest impediments to doing some of the things you've done for most people would be fear. Absolutely. So at least in my career, I took at times lateral moves where my peer sets were taking uh, the promotion and they were on the fast track to whether it was director or VP or what have you. And I spent a, a lot of the time up front of my career of trying to get broad experience. And the reason for that was I always knew I wanted to run a business and I wanted to have a broad experience. It was very intentional, actually. I've had a career map that I've had for, I don't know, maybe over 20 years where I had actually mapped it out and I'd said I wanted to be a, a CEO or general manager of a business in 15, 20 years. And mm -hmm. so I was very intentional about that. But there is an, there's another fear that holds people back of, well, am I losing out on earning power? Am I losing it back, mm -hmm. losing out on my ability to get promoted? Um, and so taking those different experiences and raising your hand to take those assignments is uh, at times very, very difficult. In fact, I remember jumping from the back end of the business at, at Dan into the front end. So making a, a change from sourcing and purchasing to, uh, to sales. And that was one of the hardest transitions I've ever made because you're competing with really high-end talent at your same level. But I would say this, it's, it's the old Darwinian principle of it's not the fastest or the strongest, it's the most adaptable organism, right? The more that you do it, the more comfortable you get with doing it. Jonathan, one thing this reminds me of is a book I read recently by uh, a fellow by the name of uh, Walt Rakowicz. And Walt was the um, CEO of a company that really he was he was with Prologis for almost 20 years, but he was the CEO uh, during the Great Recession. But he wrote a book recently called Transfluence. But one of the concepts, and I may not get it right because it's been a little bit since I read it, but it's like you know the two biggest hindrance to leadership in some ways is fear on the one hand and hubris on the other, right? And you can have both for sure, but people tend towards one or the other a little bit. And it's one of the reasons why 
having mentors is so important. You know, you need mentors who are willing to speak into your life, but you need someone who could say, you know, Matt, the way you treated this person is inappropriate. You know, you, you should have been more thoughtful. You should have listened more. You know, you actually not only need good mentors, but you need people around you who aren't afraid to speak in your life as well, including your direct reports. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a, it's actually a practice to build on that, that I've tried to cultivate is to take feedback from my directs as much as possible. I'm always asking, how's this landing? How am I doing? Give it to me straight. And it takes a while for your direct reports to, to build that trust with you. But once they know that it's coming from a good place, I found that uh, I've had a number of direct reports that have actually become very, very insightful at picking up on areas that uh, I needed to improve on as a, as a leader. I think the hubris piece is also very important because you know the fear will hold you back from taking a risk, but the hubris will actually hold you back from learning. And I think that's also part of this growth is being open and vulnerable uh, to learning, learning from others. I think it's a fantastic, uh, fantastic model. There's another one I'd like to share with you that if uh, that, that I, that's been very helpful for me. It actually came out of a personal, uh, there's some very dark days in the personal side of my life, but it's it's really helped me on the professional side. That's I think relevant to what we're talking about here. It's uh, probably get the credit wrong, but it was a book, uh, Moore and Gillette, called King, Magician, Warrior, Lover. And it is uh, basically uh, kind of a synthesis of some Jungian archetypes um, that I found to be very helpful uh, from a leadership perspective. Uh, the whole notion is the king is the archetype of the decision maker, the one who sets the vision. The magician is the uh, is the planner. That's the consultant, so to speak, in, in business terms. The warrior, that's the one that uh, executes what the king says and what the, what the magician plans. And then the lover makes sure that everybody's taken care of and good along the way. And I found that those four archetypes, whenever I'm dealing with a team or dealing with a business situation, Thing. How am I showing up today? Am I showing up as the king? Am I, so am I showing up as the warriors? Am I showing up as the lover? Ideally, you need to actually be showing up as all of them. And if you don't, you need to have somebody around you, a mentor or a teammate or somebody that's playing that role as well. Anyway, it's been a model that's been very, very helpful for me uh, in my own personal leadership style is to reflect on those four different archetypes. Uh, so credits to Carl Jung and, and the guys who synthesized that all, uh, I think it was more in Gillette in that book. That's great. Jonathan, I want to ask a couple of questions. One, I'd like you to tell me more about Nielsen Massey. It's a intriguing company, but I'm also curious as to why you left what you were doing to take this job as CEO. Sure. Yeah, so so Nielsen Massey is a it's a very cool company. It's third generation, owned and operated. Um, so it's been around for over a hundred years. Uh, we have family members embedded in the business. We have an independent fiduciary board, uh, but there are there's family shareholders own a hundred percent of the business. It's uh, based up in uh, Waukegan, Illinois. We've got a manufacturing plant there that does vanilla extracts and powders. Uh, and uh, vanilla paste. So it's really the high-end kind of culinary uh, products that the, the business was built on and has since started to branch out. It's had a, It has its own brand that you could buy from a consumer standpoint. We have a big B2B side of the business where we would supply 
large uh, CPG and other manufacturers of their own products with uh, the high-end vanilla products. And we also have a plant over in, uh, in Europe. We have a plant in the Netherlands that services the Eurozone. Uh, but what really attracted me, Matt, to the role was I had just come out of doing a, a turnaround and I'd worked in growth businesses and, and, I, and I've worked in maintenance businesses and I've worked in a lot of different types of scenarios over the course of my career. And the one that really attracted me most was, was growth, that kind of steady, sensible, how do you take a business and transform it uh, inside to out and grow it organically, also inorganically, but with uh, a lot of focus on innovation. And when I looked at Nielsen Massey, they have a product that is just second to none a fantastic uh, brand reputation and a lot of capability. What was in my mind, the opportunity was to take that and leverage it uh, with some of the experience that I had of how do you take it to new markets? How do you get it into the hands of consumers? How do you get the positioning and the storytelling right? Uh, so for me, it was all about the growth and the chance to actually uh, you know, take a CEO role and, and, uh, and place a bet on myself. And since I've been on board, Matt, I've learned so much more about vanilla that I didn't even know is fascinating because this plant is actually an orchid and it's hand pollinated. It only blooms for a few hours on one day a year. And that's just the start of it. It takes months for the actual vanilla bean to grow. Um, it takes about six to eight months to cure it. And then we process it. So you're looking at about a year from the time that you hand pollinate this thing to actually getting the, the product that you would see showing up in your, your cookies or your, your brownies or, or whatnot. So it's actually a, it's a, an amazingly complicated supply chain with, I think we counted, there was somewhere upwards of 700 touch points without machinery by hand that have to happen for this product to come to market. That is remarkable. So for growth, obviously you can grow in channels of distribution. You can grow in existing channels. You can add channels. What are some of your ideas there that you yeah. can share? Yeah, absolutely. So the closing growth is is building ACV uh, from a branded perspective. We have all commodity volume distribution. We have very, very low distribution um, that uh, is just waiting there to be seized upon. And be it what it may, as, as we're in the midst of a pandemic, people are cooking more at home. Vanilla usage is up uh, anywhere from one and a half to two times what the overall baking category is up. Uh, so we have a tremendous opportunity in front of us just to to build uh, distribution in existing channels. But to your point, there's new channels of business that we are going to start to look at. And there's also a, uh, a huge focus that we're going to place on our e-com business. It's a, it's a channel of growth that has many, many tentacles and facets to it. Uh, but that's going to be a, an area for growth as well for us. International, that's another growth uh, vector for us. And that's all with just within vanilla. We have a couple of, uh, I would call them innovation uh, ideas in the hopper that are tremendously exciting will serve as a whole new consumer need, but also have to do with vanilla. So that's another area for growth. And that's all just on the organic side before we even start talking about how we can leverage some of our cold extraction process for other types of what I call tangential tangential products to vanilla uh, that, that uh, will be a pretty quick build for us as we get outside of vanilla into some of these other flavors and other uh, natural food extracts that we can bring to market. That's one of the other great things about uh, Nielsen Massey is if you go back in the history, one of the first uh, fair trade vanillas, uh, founding member of sustainability uh, organization, the SVI. So we are on trend from a lot of what the consumers are looking for from a better for you, whole foods, naturality, transparency of supply chain perspective. And so there's a lot of room for us to, to grow the brand. 
Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for taking time to share with us today. Uh, you have such an interesting career path, and we wish you the very best as CEO. Thank you very much, Matt. It was a pleasure being with you today. Take care. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Be Epic podcast from the Walton College. You can find us on Google, SoundCloud, iTunes, or look for us wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and rate us. You can find current and past episodes by searching Be Epic Podcast, one word, that's B-E-E-P-I-C podcast, and now Be Epic. Be Epic.